Welcome to Wave Family Church. This is our sermon podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek God through His Word. We invite you to join us in person every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We would love to meet you. Or you can also visit us online at wayfamily.church. Today, uh, the sermon title is Friend or Foe. And this is a continuation of the, um, uh, of the sermon series that we're doing in, in James. And so I want to turn your attention to James chapter 4 today. And we're only going to be looking at six verses. I realized that last week, I just took my time and yours. <laughs> I'm hoping not to do that today. So uh, let's go to James chapter 4 today. And before we get into this, I just want to briefly recap what's going on here. James is addressing believers, Jewish believers, members of the church, who are dispersed throughout the regions of what they call the Gentile world, right? They're not in Jerusalem. They're not where, uh, what you would call the epicenter of Christianity at the time. And so there seems to be some struggling. There seems to be some kind of fighting going on with them. And we'll We'll definitely look into that. Uh, But James goes and he addresses these believers in this letter. And it's it's actually quite of a punch of a letter, in my opinion. If you read this, it's like, wow, James isn't holding back. He's really addressing certain issues that are problematic in the church. And he's just speaking with all confidence by by the power of the Holy Spirit and instructing these people with wisdom. Uh, we called the letter of James the Proverbs of the New Testament with very applicable and very practical information for them to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. That's the biggest challenge there. And then he goes and he addresses uh, faith and the reality that there is a false faith and there's a saving faith, the true faith, and that the true faith um, uh, has an outflow of works or deeds or actions. There's that that's a product of this belief that Christ came and reconciled us to him, right? And so we express that love uh, to others because Christ loved us first. And so he's saying faith that is dead doesn't do this. Faith that is dead doesn't have any kind of motivation to go and serve others and proclaim to others and love others, right? It's kind of just an idea, but not necessarily this true faith that changes, this new birth. You know, we say it over and over as preachers, you must be born again, right? And so it seems that there's, there's a mist there, and it's very easy to be confused in the sense that we think we have saving faith, but we're far from it. And so the only way we as the church or as people are able to observe each other's faith is the output, right? There's no way I know what you believe unless you show me what you believe. You know, we use the example of, uh, is a cheesy bad example probably, coconut oil. Uh, that's the example that I use. If you, if you believe in coconut oil, I'm going to see coconut oil in your house, right? If you don't, we probably won't have that, you know? And so this is the way that we're able to see each other's faith. There's no other way. Here's the thing, though. We are not the judges of the soul. We are not the ones who determine, yeah, you're saved, you're not, and so and so on and so forth, right? So that's not our job. That's God's job. But he goes from there, this, this, this faith that produces action, that produces works, and not just in action, but also in words, 
That's the next thing that he mentions, is that we have to have control over the words that we say because our words really matter. Our words have the power for either life or destruction. And so he keeps going from there. And then he says, what we do, what we say, really is derivative of where we gather our wisdom, right? Wisdom, not just knowing something, but knowing what to do with that knowledge. That's wisdom or lack of. And there's two wisdoms, basically. There's wisdom from above and there's wisdom from below. And whatever we befriend, we will start producing fruit. If we befriend or if we inquire of the wisdom from below, or let's say worldly wisdom, worldly earthly wisdom, then that's going to be the product that we will be able to see in our, in, in our lives. But if we inquire of the scriptures, if we inquire of the wisdom of the Lord, then we will see that also produce fruit in the Lord. And so with that same idea, another key indicator that James brings up today in regards to true saving faith is an attitude towards the world. So there's how we behave based on our faith, what we say, where we input our information and wisdom, and then how we output it as well. So all of this is the same message. Do you see that? And so he continues with uh, warnings against worldliness. And James made uh, mention to this earlier in this letter. If you go back to James chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, Religion, meaning outward practice, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and I want to highlight this last part today, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this is a quick mention of this, and today, or in this portion of Scripture, James is going to expound more on that. And so that's what we're going to look into, a little bit more into what it means to, to be or to keep ourselves unstained from the world. So let's go to James chapter four. And again, we're only gonna look at the first six verses today and it says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word today. We ask that you would help us be ready for this, Lord. That we would have prepared hearts to receive, Lord Jesus. We know that these are seeds, Father, and we ask that you would be glorified in our lives, that you would allow us to receive this well, Lord, and that you would uh, that, that you would really come into our hearts and convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Father, that we would be able to do what you have called us, what you have created us to do, and that is to glorify you and to enjoy you. We love you this moment, Lord Jesus. You have our attention, and we ask that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.
And so I believe that the key verse that summarizes this passage, uh, or the big idea, if you would, let's, let's just say, okay, what's the big idea of this particular uh, message here? In fact, I would go as far as saying the big idea of this book is that friendship with the world is enmity with God or hostility with God. That's a very interesting thought. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to try to make sense of this because at, at, let's see, at a glance, it sounds kind of hostile in itself to see that, right? Wait, what do you mean friendship with the world is, is, is a hostility with God? Let's, let's break it down and make sense of what it's saying. Let's not assume, right? Let's actually pull out what the Bible is saying. And so what James is saying is that true faithful living involves a separation from the world and its countless contaminations. What he's saying is that those who have true saving faith are those who have been rescued from the grips of the slavery of sin, you know, are set apart. And if we think back to our sermon series in Peter, that was the central message as well, is that we are to be holy. We have been called to be holy. To be holy is to be set apart, to be different, to be clean, to be uncontaminated from what the world offers. And so last week we saw in, in chapter 3 that wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That is the outcome of wisdom from above. And, and there's this promise here that I like to, just as a reminder, 318, that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so as believers, we make peace. We have received the Prince of Peace. We live in peace, or at least we ought to, okay? There should be no fighting with us. And let me just remind you, as we read this first verse, it is very obvious that there's fighting inside the church. Very obvious. The language here is very explicit. It's very clear. There's quarreling, there's fights, there's conflict. And so this is just the result of worldly wisdom. This is the result of not being trained up or instructed by the word of the Lord. And so uh, friendship or allegiance with the world, let's say, is grounded on this worldly vision and this, I'm sorry, worldly wisdom. And then this is evidence of unbelief. And so there's a lot of things that happens uh, when we cling to the words, world's wisdom rather than uh, God's wisdom. And so as we dive deeper into this passage, we will see that an ungodly friendship with the world inevitably results in personal conflict with others, with oneself, and with God. That's the result of friendship with the world. It results in personal conflict with others, with oneself, and with God. And so just from that, the word of advice is be friends with God and not the world. But again, we'll make sense of that here in a minute. So let's look at that first part. Friendship with the world results in personal conflict with others. Look at verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This, again, it's implying that there's fighting going on. This a literal, literal translation from the Greek to the English of this verse or of this particular uh, language that we see here would read like this. Why quarrels and why conflict among you? If we, if we just literally translated it from the Greek, that's how it would read. Why quarrels, why fights? And that's a good question to ask. Why? Why do we fight? Why do we bump heads with one another? Especially as believers who have been redeemed in peace to peace, 
Why do we still have conflict with one another? That's a good question. Now, what causes quarrels? Let's, let's look at this. First of all, quarrels are general, prolonged, and serious dip- disputing or combat. War. Quarreling means to be at war with somebody. Okay? War is a pretty big word with very few letters. <laughs> war is very significant. That is no joke. To be at war with someone means that there's a conflict that's pretty large. Would you agree? So this is what he's saying. There's quarrels. The, um, the original Greek word is polymos. What causes polymos among you? And so in Matthew 24, 6, this is the same word that is translated as wars. And here's the thing, though. It's, it's this, this, this very conflicting, very dangerous thing that happens in the, in the world. And, and it says this in Matthew 24, 6. And you will hear of polymos, of wars, and rumors of polymos, of wars. And what causes these fights among you? In other words, what causes violent specific conflicts or battles between you? And what motivates you to extremes, extremes even to murder? That's the question. And this is, again, a rhetorical question because this is how they communicated in that time, right? It was assumed that, you know, what, that, that, that when you present something, you would try to think through these uh, uh, opposing comments or questions that they would have, the rhetorical questions, you would answer them as you're explaining things. And so that's what James is doing. He's not actually asking them. He's going to tell them why. Okay. But the fact of the matter is that this friendship with the world is causing them to have conflict with one another. And so uh, he says, among you, between yourselves, making it clear that these conflict relationships were between members of the church. We're not even talking about believers versus unbelievers. We're talking about so-called believers versus believers. That's a problem. That shouldn't be the norm. And this is a clear expression that something is missing here. Something is amiss. And this is important for us to revisit. It's important for us to not assume that we're in the right all the time, right? But keep going to the wisdom of the Lord. And the the wisdom of the Lord exposes whatever is wrong in our lives. And so this is so good for us to come into this and, and, and look deeper. This type of reaction or behavior towards others, this quarreling, this fighting, is the result of worldly wisdom, as you can see here. It seems that some of these folks were perhaps not even saved. It's questionable. Sometimes we ask, are you even saved? Because you're so rude. You're so hard. You're so conflicting. You're so hard to live with, like unagreeable. You may even ask the question, do you even know Jesus? You know, like, do people ask that about you? Don't raise your hand. This is important for us to think about, is how are we representing Christ? Or are we not? Because that could be the bottom of, uh, uh, of, of the thing is, maybe we're not even Christian in that we don't represent Christ well. And that's, that should be a red alert for us, for all so-called Christians, for all so-called believers. And, you know, a saved soul, though, recognizes God's forgiveness. A saved soul is quick to forgive because they, they know, we know that, hey, God first forgave us. That's why we forgive. We shouldn't be looking for reasons to forgive others other than the reality that we have first been forgiven. We talked about this in our group last Friday, actually. We do what we do, not because someone has earned that from us, not because we think that they deserve it, but because we didn't deserve it in the first place, and yet we received it from Jesus Christ. So we love because he loved us. We forgive because 
he forgave us, right? We make peace because we are at peace with him. He has made peace between uh, us and God. You know, this is the result of a true faith of true believers, people who are constantly inquiring of the scriptures, people who are constantly filling their minds and their hearts with the, wis- with the wisdom of God. So here's the problem. Um, that the church tries to advocate for the kingdom of God, always. You know, people get excited about Jesus. They think that's a great idea. Yes, Jesus is awesome, but their lives say the opposite. That's a big problem, okay? And so I think James' words for us me included, is if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we need to live like it, right? If we have a disagreement with somebody, we need to know how to address that. That doesn't mean that we have to be compliant with everything because first, purity, right? Purity is important. It's of utmost important importance, but how do we deal with these conflicts? How do we deal with disagreements that we have with others? This could initiate wars or it could extinguish wars or prevent wars. And so that's, that's a lot, you know, if we consider the reality that we have the ability to some degree to do that and how we respond and how we behave. Now, wisdom from the world prevents us from doing that. Now remember, wisdom of the world considers the wisdom of God as foolishness, all right? And so it won't make sense for us to respond in a godly way if we tried to take pointers from the world rather than from the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says this. In fact, I want to turn there. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go and from their, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now this sounds pretty harsh. This sounds pretty mean. What do you mean to separate ourselves? Now let me make this clear. It is not saying that we shouldn't greet one another. Whether, you know, it, it, It's like we, we can't hold little badges that says I'm a Christian. And if you don't have a badge that I'm not supposed to talk to you, be friendly with you. That's not what it's saying. We're still to be caring and loving and be representations of God in this world. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that we need to be careful with who we hang out with because what's the, what's the proverb? A uh, bad company corrupts good character, right? We need to understand that the people that we call friends, it's important for us to have same motives or similar motives, similar objectives, similar interests, right? A similar desire to be matured in the faith. In fact, I'm going to tell you something about Sandy and I. That's what really made us best friends when we first met, is that we had that common interest. We, we both knew that we wanted to grow in the Lord, and, and we felt like together was better, right? And so friendships that are in that way 
will grow together or they will fall together if their motives are wrong. If we continue to blend in, meaning if we continue to behave in a worldly fashion where we are constantly doing something that would not set us apart as Christians, then are we Christians? That's a good question to ask. Why are we continuing to go there? The Bible says, separate yourselves. Be distinct, be different, because I'm different, right? And so that's a very important distinction to make. If we don't do that, we're in conflict constantly. You know, we're people, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna ask you this because you probably can relate. When someone says something and the only thing you can think when you look at that person is in the face is you hypocrite, you know? And it's frustrating as someone who is growing in the Lord and who cares about that person and you see them and you're like, why are you the way that you are, you know? Why do you say that you believe, but your actions don't show it? It could be that you're just mixing in the wrong crowd more than you ought to be, right? And so let's continue from there. Sometimes making these separations is hard, you know, like, okay, who's the believer, who's not? Again, that's not our job, right? But we can see who we ought to cling to because that's sometimes really hard for me is like, who should I be listening to versus who shouldn't I be listening to? Some people even sound wise, but they're corrupt even in the, their, their own wisdom. And so how do you make those distinctions? It's hard for us to make these distinctions. Like, how do I know who's good to be with and who isn't? You know, these, these separations um, are, are very important and they're crucial, but sometimes we will not be the best judge of that. And so here's something great. We can still love people. We can still have conversations with people, no matter the background. We can still fellowship with people, no matter the background. And the Lord is gonna be the judge of that at the end of the day, but it's okay to receive. Like if anybody walked through this door, they would be welcome, right? There is no prerequisite for you to come to church. Absolutely not. But I personally do have a prerequisite if I'm going to be learning from you. That's, that's something that I have established for myself and we should for one another. Look at what Matthew 13, 30 says. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and then bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. God's gonna make that, diff that difference. He's going to separate the weeds from the harvest. That's not our job. It's also not our job to condemn people. Now there is a biblical way to, to deal with discipline and we have instructions for that, but we shouldn't be quick to say, hey, that person's heathen. That person needs to go into the fire. That's not our job, that's God's job. God's gonna do that. We just can do and practice wisdom as, as the Lord provides because it is his grace for us in the first place. And so here's the thing. These conflicts, quarrels, fights, they're not the Lord's will for us. And this is important to note, is sometimes we are so convinced, hey, I have to confront this person. Jesus doesn't love this, let's say. All right. And if you're approaching it in a way where you're lifting up your fists because you're going to fight this matter, that's not God's will for us. All right. What is God's will for us? John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Also, John 17, 21, in, in Jesus' uh, priestly prayer, he says this, 
Uh, he prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and I are one, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our behavior makes a difference. You know, our behavior, the way we respond, the way we engage with one another will show the world what we're about. And I am going to say this, sadly, too many Christians have made a bad, bad impression of Jesus. Too many so-called Christians. I don't know. But what we do, what we say, how we respond to one another really matters. And Christ is not hostile. <laughs> you know, he is not uh, uh, um, a, a quarreling God. He is loving, he's compassionate, and he has called us to that, and he has confronted the issues of the world in that. Are there moments where we do have to stand up for truth? Absolutely. That's the purity part. It's of utmost importance. And now, here's the other thing is, uh, unless we're vigilant, unless we're constantly watching out for these things, you know, we, we fall into friendship with the world very easily because our fr flesh naturally desires that. So we have to put on the old self and continue, continuously put on the new self. And that's what refines us. That's what makes us new. Now, another thing is ungodly friendships or friendship with the world also results in personal conflict with oneself. Okay, and that's where James is going to go next. Look at verse two or actually still verse one. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? And so first he asks, why are you guys fighting? Why is there conflict within you guys? And he says, is it not this, that your passions or your pleasures are at war within you? This is saying we have uncontrolled pleasures or uncontrolled passions. So not just conflict with others, but conflict within ourselves. You know, uh, whatever is going on inside of us is going to come out. And so if we like to fight, if we like to quarrel, if we like to have arguments, we're probably at war within ourselves as well. This is something to think about. After all, our external conflicts are a product of our internal conflicts. Today, there's evidence for the severity of the internal conflicts that's everywhere. If you look around, people are broken everywhere. You know, I remember when brokenness or, gosh, I can't even say that because I was so naive at the time, I felt that way. But I remember when, where people struggled, where people, you know, really, where you saw drug addiction, where you saw abuse, where you saw violence, it was very segregated to certain uh, areas, let's say, you know, it's like, oh, you don't go there because there's a lot of crime there, or you don't go there because there's a lot of just sketchy stuff going on around there. Now it's everywhere. You know, I don't know um, who's purchased a house or who's looked into neighborhoods. Recently, I know that you guys have, but there isn't a neighborhood without crime anymore. You know, this, there's conflict everywhere. Schools are in high demand for counselors, for therapists, for psychologists, for psychiatrists, not just schools. Everyone, everywhere is needing more and more of this because people are in conflict within themselves and they don't know what to do with because they have been completely consumed by the world's knowledge. It's confusing. The world's knowledge is very confusing. God's knowledge is not. It actually clears things up. It makes things very simple and very understandable, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of diligence. And so we have this need of, of, 
of, of issues that need to be dealt with because these internal conflicts, sometimes we don't know how to deal with them. And so the result of them is stuff like drug abuse, alcoholism, right? There's uh, um, domestic abuse and all these other things. These are the result of the conflicts that we have within. And this is what James is saying. Is it not that your pleasures or your passions are a war within you? You have this uncontrolled desire for things and you will do whatever it takes to get it sometimes. And sometimes you know that it's not the right thing to do, so it causes a war within you. And so this is noteworthy is that when we have the influence of the world in a way that is just overwhelming, you know, it's going to cause conflict within oneself. <clears throat> James says, your passions are a war within you. James is saying that the source of internal conflict is passions or pleasures. Now, this passions and pleasures are a desire for the gratification of sensual, sensual natural, fleshly desires. I looked up this word, passions and pleasures. And when I looked it up, I found that this word is hedonon. Have you heard of hedonism? Do you know what a hedonist is? It comes out of this word for passions or pleasures. When I looked it up, it's always used in a negative way. Passions, negative way. Passions, negative way. It's not like passion, wow, you're such a passionate speaker. You know, it's a good thing. Or the passion of the Christ. This particular word, hedonon, is always used in a negative way. This is the desire of the flesh that's constantly surfacing. And so this is where we get the word hedonist. Do you know what a hedonist is? I'll tell you just in case. It's a person who lives for their own pleasure. That's what they want. And they will, they will do anything to acquire it. All they do is live for the fulfillment of that pleasure. Okay, that's it. They are lovers of self. They are out to satisfy that pleasure. And I will tell you, it is impossible to be fully satisfied with the things of the world. If you get something, you're going to look for the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one, and you will never, ever actually come to a place where you're satisfied. 2 Timothy 3, 2 to 5 says this. It says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, with out self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Look at the instruction here. Avoid such people because they are friends with the world and not friends with God. Oh, man, this is, this is interesting. This is hard instructions if you ask me, but nevertheless important. Living with uncontrolled passions is not the will of the Lord for us. This is not the struggle <laughs> that the Lord wants us to be dealing with all the time. We can be freed from that. That's the salvation that Jesus offers is that we are no longer slaves to this sin, slaves to this desire, but we're freed from it because before we are saved, meaning the, what I mean by, slaved by slaves of sin is we can't even choose not to sin. Before we are saved, we don't even have the desire not to sin. We don't have the desire to be freed from that. We don't even think of it. But when Jesus enters our hearts, when he consumes us with his grace, then we have that conviction that says, no, don't go there. 
You know, this is why it's so important to be instructed by the word of the Lord, to have the wisdom that comes from above, because that right there is what puts the brakes on things. Otherwise, we can't, we can't even help ourselves. We can't help ourselves, right? We need the Lord's strength in that. Now, the will of the Lord says, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5 says, that it is our sanctification. What does that mean? To be more and more like Christ, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, the friend of the world is a slave to sin. The Lord wants us to not be that anymore. And only by his power and his grace are we able to be victorious there. The, those who uh, have ungodly pleasure, pleasures are constantly at war within themselves. That's what the Bible says. You know, um, I know that back in my day, when I chased all of my fleshly pleasures, there's always a problem inside of me. There was always something that I was unhappy about. There was always a need for a fix. Does that make sense? You know, but when we have reconciliation with God, we can experience the peace that comes from God. Verse two, he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Hmm, this is unfulfilled desire. You desire and you do not have, so you're willing to go and murder. You covet, oh my goodness, this is so important. I think we relate to this. Sometimes when we want something so bad, we get frustrated to the point that we do terrible things. I hope I'm not the only one, okay? Like we'll say terrible things to someone if they're in disagreement with us or they're trying to hold us back from what we want or sometimes we want something so bad that we're willing to do whatever it takes. And James says, even to the point of murder. We're even willing to kill, right? And that word murder is very interesting. The original Greek for this word is phoneo, which is used to describe murderous hatred. This is the word that Jesus says, don't hate. It's hatred as well. He says those who hate murder. This is not just talking about actually taking the life of a human being. This is desiring death to somebody. This is that, that sense of loathing, right? Like the Grinch, I loathe you kind of hate. You know, this is that, the murder of, that comes from the heart. It's, it's, uh, it's everything destructive. And this particular word actually has deeper connotations than we read here. It says, so you murder. No, he's saying, so you're willing to take life. This is also the word for suicide. So you're willing to take life, not just someone else's life, but your own, because you're at war within yourself, because you hate what's going on, or because your desire is not satisfied by what you think you need, because the, the wisdom of the world makes you have this perception that you know what you need, and then you long for it, and then you see that you can't have it, and so you're willing to murder for it, even yourself. Absalom is a good example. How many of you guys have heard of Absalom? Not, not Alice in Wonderland in the Bible. King David's son, Absalom. Do you remember his story? He craved the throne. His desire, his passion was for the throne. He wanted to reign Israel. Absalom is King David's son. We know that King David was a righteous king, right? For the most part. Absalom wanted it so much that he was willing to kill his father. Oh, he had a plan. Everything was set in stone. It's like, we're going to do this. We're going to take the throne and David's going to die. That's his son speaking about his father. 
But by the grace of God, David is not killed by Absalom. What happens is Absalom is so consumed by this desire that one day while he's riding his horse, his long, beautiful hair gets caught in an oak tree. And he hangs there helplessly on this tree. The horse runs off and he's there. And a servant of David finds Absalom. And he goes back and he reports it. He doesn't do anything because, look at this, David, being after God's heart, said, if you find my son who wants to kill me, don't hurt him. uh, David understood the condition of Absalom's heart. He understood that this man was hurting inside, that this man was some kind of had some kind of internal conflict, that this man was perhaps not in good standing with God. And so David's heart for his son was, don't hurt him. He needs an opportunity here. He cannot die right now. He had that sense of, of the eternal judgment that comes thereafter. He said, please don't hurt my son, even though he wants to kill me, don't hurt him. And so the first servant finds Absalom hanging on the tree and he reports this to his higher up and his higher up responds differently. He says, why didn't you kill him on the spot? You should have done it. He says, no, no, no. Our King David said not to. He's like, give me a spear. He goes, they find Absalom and he, the other man in his hatred for Absalom goes and he ends his life. See, we're willing to do these things, and sometimes we don't think that we're capable of it, but we do it constantly. We do it not necessarily with others, but it's so much easier to want to do it ourselves. It's almost like, if I can't get what I want, what's the point? Just take me out of here. That's selfishness to the degree that is so evil. We need to be cautious about this. These are the things that cause these quarrels, these fights, these tensions, not just with others, but with ourselves. And so, yeah, it says in 26, let's keep going, not 26, 2. <laughs> uh, uh, verse 2, he says, you covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. Covet is envy. This is an even stronger, more compelling feeling of desire. It's jealousy for another. It's like you really want what they have and you hate that they have it and you don't, right? You covet. When people harbor such fears, desires, but they cannot obtain, which is what what he's saying here, James is saying, these things that, that they're coveting, that's when fights and quarrels begin. And fights and quarrels look different for different people. It really is just an expression of whatever's going on in your heart. This can mean marital conflicts. This can mean family conflicts. This could mean uh, job conflicts, social, political conflicts. I think we see this everywhere, right? This means that there's something inside of us. There's a war that's being waged inside of our hearts. And all these things are a result of an unsatisfied personal lust and envy, or as James has put it, passions, desires, and coveting. So, this is the result also of friendship or love for the things of the world. And uh, I'll get to it here in a second. I was about to get ahead of myself. Now, the Bible warns us against this. Look at 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and all the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Now, another cause of internal conflict or conflict with self is the desire that we have, is self-desire, is selfishness. Now, the word would explain it here very good, but... 
It's not just uncontrolled or unfulfilled, but also selfish desires. It's that it's all about me. And then uh, verse three says, you ask not, I'm sorry, you ask and do not receive. Nope, backwards. You do not have, it's still verse two, because you do not ask. Now, isn't it interesting that when we want something that we know is ungodly, we don't ask the Lord for it? Have you noticed that? Yeah, but sometimes we do. And it's like a really foolish request of us to God. Uh, I think I told the story about um, when I was getting my hair cut in Los Angeles and this drunk man came to, uh, to the Virgin Mary uh, mosaic. Did I tell that story? I'm going to tell it again. Okay. Just because some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, we were going downtown LA, 3rd Street. If you know what that is, it's a busy area right there. It's the barber that we had been going for years. There's this drunk man, sees this mural made of tiles, mosaic of the Virgin Mary, and he's so drunk out of his mind, and he goes up and he prays to her and he says, mother of mine, kill all the stupid people except for me. You know, sometimes we do ask, but we ask wrongly. Right? This, this whole scenario is very, just totally wrong. But anyway, just for the sake of example, he says, we do not ask, and that's why we do not have. Well, it's interesting that sometimes we don't even have the nerve to ask because we know that that's outside of God's will. And so when we don't ask, it is us assuming that we have the ability or the power or that we can find everything that we think we need to satisfy our souls, our hearts, our desires, that it's all in the world. Do you see the problem with that? And then when we do ask, we ask wrongly. We ask for things that are totally outside of his will, and that's why we don't receive it. And so this is... This is very interesting. It's like we obviously are not informed by the will of God. We obviously are not informed what the, the will of God is. And this is a very dangerous thing to be. Now, James says in verse or chapter one, verse 17, that every good gift and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Good things come from above. Let's ask God for the things that we need. Let's ask God to satisfy our needs. Let's not look for it in our ways, in the ways that we think that we need it. Okay? Internal conflict is a result of selfishness. It's just the fact of the matter, which tends to forget to ask God for anything. And if we don't forget to ask, we ask wrongly, as we've seen. And so James says this, you ask wrongly to spend it in your passions. In other words, we ask with wrong motives. When we ask something, we don't ask for the, the, the goodness of God. We don't ask for his will to be done here on earth. We don't ask for, uh, uh, for that which would honor him and bring him glory. We ask for things that would honor us or bring us glory. We ask him to fulfill our desire, not his. We ask him to do something that is just reckless for ourselves. And we're so far beyond even understanding it, like the prodigal son. He asks for his inheritance. The father gives us. This is a great parable, by the way. It's, it's a good way to see this. And he takes it. And what does he do? He goes and he squanders everything in reckless living, is what the Bible says, until he is found with nothing. Learning the hard way where he's even willing to eat with the pigs. And then he remembers, but at my father's house, there's food. But there, if I could just go and be a servant and he finally comes to his senses and he goes. And what does he find there? He finds a father with his arms wide open. He's noticed that the father didn't go and rebuke him right away. He just took him in. 
You know, and that's what God wants for us is sometimes we do uh, break our relationship with him. Sometimes we do stray from him. Sometimes we do think, hey, what I want, I can find it in the world. And then we find out, nope, I'm not finding it. In fact, I'm in war with myself. I'm wanting to murder, you know, I'm wanting to feel like the satisfaction that I can't find anywhere. When we come to the end of ourselves, we will find the God who's loving, who's gracious, who's willing to receive us, who will love us and who will satisfy every one of our needs. And that is beautiful. And there is no greater love than that. Because this prodigal son was not deserving, in my opinion, to even come back home. And I think he kind of knew that. He was kind of hesitant to go back home. He knew that, man, I messed this up. I really messed this up. I squandered everything that my father gave me in reckless living because all I wanted to do was satisfy me, me, me. And if not me, myself. And if not myself, then I. You know, it's all about me. This is what the world tells us. The world tells you that it's all about you. And then you'll find out that you are not enough. And anything and everything that you tried to do and you tried to, to have is not enough. And you realize the hard way, wait a minute, it's not about me. You know, I have found the most satisfaction when I'm not serving myself, but I'm serving someone else. That's when I feel that fulfillment of life. That's when I feel like, man, I've got purpose. When it's no longer about me and it's about somebody else, that's what we ought to, ought to do. Now, finally, let's just close this up here because I can get into this. We'll see that friendship with the world also means conflict with God. Look at verse 4 through 6. We'll get through this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell or to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, in regards to the conflict with God, I think that these verses that, uh, point out to three particular characteristics that causes conflict with God. One is enmity with God. That's hostility with God. That means when we're not on the same page with God, not because we want him to be on our page, but we need to be on his page, then we're going to have conflict with God. The other reason we'll have conflict with God is because we disregard his scripture. Five says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says? In other words, why are we disregarding what the word of God is saying? If we do that, we're going to be in conflict with God. And then finally, verse six, verse six says that God opposes the proud. And so pride also puts us in conflict with God. So enmity with God. This is where I really want to talk about what this means to not be friends with the world or to not have friendship with the world because this could be very misinterpreted. Now, this word for friendship in the Greek, it's philia. All right. And it's actually only found here. But the verb version of that is phileo, which means love. We've heard of these different loves, right, of the scripture. There's four particular ones. This phileo is a, a brotherly friendship love like a father has for a son. It's an emotional love. This is a very bonding kind of love. This is the love that longs to be with somebody else, but it's not the, uh, the, uh, the sensual one either. This is not ergos. It's not like the longing that you have for your spouse. And it is also not agape love, unconditional love. He's saying here, that friendship with the world is love for the world. It's that desire to be with the world. It's 
That love with the world meaning an intense and deep affection for it, meaning it's evil, meaning the things that it has to offer, meaning it's world system. And so by default, those who love sin hate God. That's enmity with God. If you love the world, that means that you love what it has to offer and all it has to offer is sinful pleasures. So if you love sin, you're going to be an enemy of God. Do you see how that works? It's like math. Two plus two is four. Love sin, you hate God. If you love God, you hate sin. That's how it works. And so this, this friendship with the world doesn't mean that we're conversational and we could be, you know, uh, friendly. It means that we're in love with the things about it. You know, like we've got to have it. That's what friendship with the world means. That's what uh, James is addressing here. So that's the first thing. Galatians says, says it well. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So, again, true friendships have common interest. So if you're saying you're friends with the world, that's not common interest with the things of God. If you're saying you're a friend with God, that's not common interest with the things of the world, right? So we have to be friends with one or the other. We can't be both, okay? So the other thing that causes quarrels with God is a disregard for Scripture. In verse 5, he says, Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says? I'm going to be honest with you. This one stumped me because I looked for where the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit, and He has made to dwell with us. I couldn't find that anywhere. So... I inquired, I looked, and it seems that James is making a general proclamation of what the word says. Because there's different passages that says that the Lord is jealous. He's rightly jealous, right? And so it's not necessarily that he's quoting specific scripture, but he's making a common declaration of what the word of the Lord says. But here's the point is, you suppose that it's to no purpose that scripture says, and the fact of the matter is that so many times we suppose that what the scripture says is not actually important. Right. With the, the, the Bible is filled with promises and with warnings. If we heeded them, if we actually were interested in what these were, we would pay attention. We would not disregard what it's saying. But instead, we disregard it and we forget the Lord's promises. We forget that there's hope. We forget that there's love, that there's compassion, etc. And so what do we do? We end up being in conflict with God because we're not looking into him, into his word. We're looking into the world. This is going to be conflicting between us and God. And so do not disregard the scriptures. This is important. And sometimes, and I'll tell you that, actually, let me just tell you this. The world says what? Just follow your heart. You guys knew that. Are you guys friends with the world? I'm just checking. Just kidding. Follow your heart. You know, so many times we're told, just listen to your heart, man. Just go with what that goes. You know, the Bible warns us against that. That's, that's worldly wisdom. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So if our hearts don't belong to Jesus, we're going to be deceived by them. So our hearts are always confused. Our hearts go like this, you know. But the word of the Lord stands true yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so we can count on that. We don't disregard the word of God. Because when we are confused, it is not when we are speaking and spewing lies, this brings us the truth, right? When we are told lies, this corrects us. This is the thing that we need to be established upon. We should not disregard the word of God because that puts us in conflict with God. And then James says this in verse 6, But he gives more grace. 
Despite the natural, unbelieving world, the hearts that man has, God gives more grace. Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, where sin is increased, grace abounds all the more. But he gives, he doesn't give grace to those who are proud. And that's the final thing here that causes us to be in conflict with God is pride. But the, uh, the verse six says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride causes conflict, conflict with God because pride says, I am superior. Because pride says, you know, I don't have to listen to him. Pride is arrogant. Pride is selfish. Pride is boastful. And this is idolatry. You're putting yourself above a God, the creator of heaven and earth. And in contrast, humility says, I need help. I, I am insufficient. I can't do it. Humility um, submits to God. It recognizes the importance of the Lord's friendship, and it's grateful for grace. That's the difference. The pride that God opposes or the proud that God opposes sets themselves up to be their own God. They're self-centered and self-worship. That means you're an enemy of God. Because if you're self-centered, if you're prideful, you're your own God. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so if you're there, you are by default in conflict with God. See how that works? Now here's the point. The Christians are not excuse me, true Christians are not part of the evil that happens in the world. True Christians are not out to quarrel and fight. True Christians are not out to be in conflict with one another with God. True Christians are constantly seeking to be in peace because we serve and we follow a God of peace. Okay? Uh, and because Christians have been chosen out of that, we have been rescued from that, we're able to do that. John 15, 19 says, if you were of the world, the world would love you in its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So here's the thing. Yeah, sometimes because we're believers of Jesus, we're not going to be accepted everywhere. That's okay. We don't have to be like, you know, there's a lot of things that I say because the Bible says it. And people don't like me for that. That's fine. Okay? That's okay. That's okay. God loves you. And that's what matters because it matters for eternity, not just for now. And so... We, rather than being conformed to this world, as Romans puts it, chapter 12, we need to be sent into this world by Jesus to be the light. And so here's the takeaway that I have for you, and we'll wrap it up with this. This is just the wrap-up of what we just talked about in these six verses. The takeaway is that friendship with the world, or love of the world, is grounded on human wisdom and results in personal conflict with others, with oneself, and with God. And so if you feel like this may be you, like if you're a man, I think I'm more of a friend of the world than I am with God. And if you, feel, if you have that sense of conviction, that's a beautiful thing. That is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That may be the Lord's drawing, the Lord's calling on you, saying, hey, come back like the father who longed for his prodigal son to return, right? If you're feeling that conviction, that's so good, you know, it's, 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 it's God's work in your heart. And he says, come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is where we can find the rest, that final satisfaction that we long for is when we come to him and when we submit to him, not with our prideful selves, but in humility. And so I just want to take a moment and ask the Lord to forgive us for these things, because here's the fact of the matter is we, we're not perfect beings. We have not been glorified, and we all still struggle with sin. We all still struggle with these issues, but God has redeemed them. He has he redeemed us, and he has justified us, and he has proclaimed us to be righteous because his righteousness has been counted to us. 
And so we need to understand that Christ offers that. He, he offers peace with God. And we are no longer enemies of God, but we are friends of God. So let me ask you this. Are you a friend or a foe? Are you a friend or foe of the world? Or are you a friend or foe of God? That's a very important question to ask, to self-evaluate about. Amen? Six verses, so deep. Let's pray. Lord, we ask, Father, that you would help us. Because sometimes your word seems so hard and so impossible for us to fulfill. And it is in our strength. But Lord, we can do all things through you, who is our strength. We ask, Father, that you would continue to build us up, that you would continue to set us apart onto righteousness, to purity, that we would exemplify you well, that we would represent you in a, well that is, in a way that is not untrue to your character. Or forgive us for gathering up our wisdom from the world and not being true to the scriptures, to your word, Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would continue to sanctify us as it is your will. But we ask that your will be done in our lives and on this earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.